0: Identity is really not a problem, it's authentication. It's because of this password problem that we have right now. And it's not only a, you know, a horrible inefficiency and time waster, it's literally the most fragmented system. And it doesn't use public key infrastructure, doesn't use cryptography, like the, you know, kind of founders of the internet envisioned it to. We didn't use that because people don't manage private keys well. And so we have this situation where every single service has this silo database, everybody's credentials, The users have to deal with a whole different registration and account everywhere they go, and they have to trust every single one of those services to, in theory, be securing that data.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I wanna share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you are hear from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own, before-it-happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Protecting your identity online continues to be a huge challenge. Most of us have been affected by data breaches and leaks at companies and services where we have accounts and passwords. In 2021 alone, the Federal Trade Commission received 5.7 million fraud and identity theft reports, 1.4 million of which were consumer identity theft cases. Here are just a few scary examples of what we face. A LinkedIn data breach in 2021 involved 700 million profiles, or 92% of the total user base. Facebook, shortly after a public promise to better protect user information, suffered a breach of 540 million user records in 2019. And the notorious Equifax breach in 2017 compromised users, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and in some cases, driver's license numbers and credit card information. Our guest, Locke Brown, says 80% of hacking incidents are caused by weak or stolen credentials and that the traditional approach to password management is a big part of the problem. That's why he created NewID, a blockchain-based digital identity company that provides users with a better way to manage their online identities. User credentials are secure and portable across platforms and services. So users no longer need to rely on outside parties to keep their personal data secure, giving individuals ultimate control over what they choose to share. For a lot, the drive to address authentication came from learning the hard way as a digital native growing up in the 1990s and early 2000s in the days of the early internet. But I'll let him tell you about that, going back to where it all started for Locke.
0: I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I was born in 1991. So I grew up you know, in the 90s and the early, in the early 2000s here and uh it was really interesting because i was right at that that correct in time one of the last generations i feel like that remembers the you know that AOL dial-in you know the big huge monitors we had a family computer in the kitchen and the internet was definitely its kind of wild west and and it's funny you know i think about it now it's like i grew up when it was don't give strangers your information People couldn't imagine putting credit card information online, and now you know we literally go online and ask a stranger to come pick us up and, and get in their car, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, what your whole family was into on wrap with AOL, and was it for entertainment purposes, or school, or how were you using? My dad used
0: computers for his work, and we had a family computer, but there's still a lot of them playing outside. I hadn't taken over like a gaming, like video gaming and stuff, for instance was not as cool as it is today, not as acceptable. You had limited screen time.
1: Well, you weren't as mobile either, right? So the whole mobility and and the internet accessibility really didn't happen, you know, really take off till the the mid-90s. So you were kind of ahead of the curve. What did your father and and mother do?
0: So my my mother is a stay-at-home mom, and I have a younger sister. She actually works with me now, which is funny. And my dad's a professional photographer. So he did commercial photography here. He had a studio, which... I always claimed to have an office in when I was a child. And they were on the kind of forefront of digital photography as well. So he always had kind of the newest gadgets and stuff at the time that I got to play with. So I was really fortunate in that regard. Tried to make a point to to be pretty forward-thinking with computers and stuff. And I remember, I guess it was seventh grade that I got Nokia brick phone, you know, little black screen texting. And that was when like certain parents were getting their kids' phones, others weren't, you know, nobody knew how to really approach it.
1: Well, the phone plans were really bad. I mean, you oh, pay like by minute. I mean, it wasn't like well, you could eat buffet. It was like it was, the, and there was like just the phone plans alone were just kind of we're expensive compared to what we have today, right?
0: They were. I got myself in trouble once because so I played World of Warcraft in middle school, and I was probably fifteen. And I remember I got one of those early MacBooks, and I I, I wanted to play my games so badly. One time, I I. And this is when, I don't know how in the world it worked. Latency was bad, but I I had tethered my phone to my MacBook so I could connect to the internet through that to play my game. And I think the phone bill, I don't know the exact cost, but I racked up a very inappropriate phone bill one time using the earliest version I know of being able to actually connect to the internet data with no data plan, obviously.
1: That's a good dinner conversation.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, yes.
1: (laughs) How big was the bill?
0: Yeah. I can't remember. I'll have to get back to you on what exactly it was, but it was like
1: was it hundreds?
0: I think I think it hit another digit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So when you were in high school, I read you were in deep like debate clubs, robotics, finance clubs. Can you talk a little bit about some of those more mature activities that often you don't see on a resume? I saw that on your LinkedIn. By oh, the way. sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. So I did I got, I got in a debate because a buddy was actually doing it and, and then I became his Debate partner, so that was fun. But really, I was I was interested in investing in finance. I mean, I, I I was ten years old when I convinced my dad to set up a custodial a brokerage account.
1: Do you remember your password?
0: <laughs> I do. Funny enough, funny enough, Because that was also a time when I I used this one word followed by and I would change the numbers. You know, at the end, I don't do that anymore. But that credentials definitely been compromised. But this is also before I feel like attackers were as plenty as they are now and sophisticated there weren't and again you know there weren't all these databases that have ha- already had been compromised
1: do you remember having a conversation with your father when he opened that account with you about safety or was that ever a conversation at that point
0: i don't think we did no i don't think i, was, I don't think i was on his radar in fact i i know it wasn't because i've helped put those things on his radar <laughs> in more recent years
1: Locke ended up leaving alabama and going to a liberal arts university in california claremont mckenna college where a favorite high school teacher had become a professor. Who were your biggest influencers in terms of professors or subjects that you were taking that just kind of started opening up new chapters for you?
0: So I went out there knowing that I wanted to do economics or finance. And I I ended up graduating with a math and economics degree and a uh, masters in finance actually while I was there. And that was kind of the result of a the new program they were bringing on. They're doing kind of a They started a four-year master's in finance programs. But then on the economic side, too, you know, I, Professor Helland was my first Econ 50, the intro to econ class professor. um, And he was awesome. I actually quote him to this day sometimes. I don't know where it came from, but it's that kind of definition of economics is um, the attempt to reconcile what is with what should be. And I hold that and uh, abide by that. That's how I view it. Well, still, so that was really influential.
1: Well, and it applies into just life in general, right? Oh, absolutely. Right? I, I would argue economics
0: absolutely does. Yeah.
1: So, a lot where you're in school, I have to ask you, were you making money? Did you have like another finance club on campus?
0: Uh, well, so I was making a little bit of money with my first job freshman year working in the mailroom. I think I was making minimum wage and then I then I ended up actually working for the rest of my time at school at the Financial Economics Institute on research stuff, which paid better as well. But we did we had a student investment fund. This existed prior to me being there. I did not found this, but was fortunate enough to apply and join that my freshman year and was in that all four years. And um, now it's a lot more than it was. But we managed I forget what it was. It was well over a million dollars of the school's endowment, and you know did we kind of tried to structure it like a real fund, and it was it was pretty serious uh, in terms of. You know, doing all the due diligence and, and everything. So, we, so that was, that, that was, that was a lot of fun and met some of my friends through that as well. But that did not pay and that didn't go to our
1: focus. So, then comes Google. You did an internship there. How did that happen?
0: I knew that I wanted to do, it was called the Silicon Valley program and it was new. So, I did the first semester of that, which was where you spend a semester of school in Silicon Valley interning for. So you basically you could get an internship in Silicon Valley and take classes on the weekends. So that was that was one at Google, and that was that was junior year. And so I knew that I was foregoing a study abroad semester, and so I ended up doing an internship the summer after sophomore year, and. Before junior year, abroad in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, uh, which was pretty wild. So I actually interned or worked for a um, I guess it was a, you call it a private equity f- uh, firm there, but it was basically this American guy Lee Cashel that had moved out there years before and set up this empire. So I worked for for him and his company, Asia Pacific Investment Partners. That did they had their hands in everything. They had a brokerage arm. They had a real estate division. They owned a cement factory. You know, so I, sophomore year summer I was out there in Mongolia. And built a number of websites there for his different real estate development projects, and then did you know investment models, pitched investors, took potential investors and clients, you know, out and showed them a good time. So did the whole thing, and that was a really a really crazy summer.
1: Yeah, Mongolia is not the place that you would think that one would go for an internship, but it sounds like you had no. total exposure to every facet of what you had maybe in a textbook, but now you're applying it in the real world
0: it went beyond the textbook for sure. <laughs> and Mongolia is, there's not even a McDonald's or there wasn't at the time, even a McDonald's, you know, there and you know, Ulamatar is the only city in the country. It's the most sparsely populated country in the world with 3 million people population, half of which live nomadically as they have pretty much for a th- thousand years. The other half lived in Ulamatar, which was a city built for about a third of those people. So, you know, most, Half the city, I wasn't on the water, electric grid. You know, they burned trash. They warm it. It was, it was pre-emerging market for sure. And I'll tell you, I night I stayed with a uh, a nomadic family out in the middle of nowhere. They had a motorcycle, and I desperately wanted to ride, drive it. And to drive it, they made me drink this bowl of airag, fermented horse milk, which it was was heinous. To be honest with you
1: very organic.
0: <laughs> true, it's true. But when you see the big barrel that they put it into sitting out in the sun, which they spit in to get the bacteria going to ferment it, you you lose your appetite a little bit.
1: Yeah, I know why you didn't become a farmer. So <laughs> let's, so from there you go back to school, you finish, and then you end up at Microsoft?
0: Well, so my co-founder is Microsoft, so I actually went back Straight to Silicon Valley from Mongolia to start my internship at Google, which was during the school year so I was away from Claremont for the first semester of junior year and that's when I was interning at Google I was living in Mountain View and with kids from the Claremont colleges so that was good and and you had your friends or, or newly made friends kind of around you to, to slog through the full-time job and full-time classes basically, which was pretty intense but you know it was very uh, enlightening that you know, so I did, I guess my biggest project while I was at Google was building this internal tool for six different of the engineering programs teams to teach them. It was a, it was a guide that had to build out a code for them to, it taught them how to use one of the proprietary internal tools. And so, and then they had to, you know, all, they had all these lessons, exercises, it was interactive. And then, then there was a final kind of test and they had to take it and pass that and whatnot. And so I launched that the last week before I left. and. It's kind of cool to see it It was still being used for a while. I mean, it still may be, I'm not sure. But I had a notification that would actually get sent to my personal email address when someone completed the entire thing. And so I would still get pinged by that for years after, which is kind of neat to see. Which is a security breach, by the way.
1: (laughs) So you go from Mongolia to the Google campus, totally different.
0: Oh, my God, night and day.
1: So... After school, you started working on a company with your co founder, Nolan Smith. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So, moved to Seattle, got, you know, fortunate enough, got the job at BGI, Bill Gates Investments, as we called it. And uh, that was up in Seattle, actually in Kirkland across the lake. And it was in early 2016 that one of my best friends was coming out to visit me in Seattle. And when he was out visiting me, he said that, you know, his buddy, who happened to be Nolan Smith from college, who worked at Microsoft at the time, was out there, and so I met Nolan, and so we ended up just hitting it off. We were hiking; I think it was down at Rainier. Great time, Lord knows what conversations we got into, but you know all sorts of tech. And he was into distributed systems, and and the guy's mind, you know, was so sharp. And and we just we just hit it off on all sorts of fun little tangential thoughts and things. To give a little context, on my mind was in crypto, and so I had been you know mining Bitcoin since 2013. I wrote my thesis, my master's in finance thesis at Claremont on market efficiency and price predictability models in Bitcoin. And getting the data on exchange data on Bitcoin in, for 2013 and 2014 was a lot harder then, than it would be now. So I my mind was, was already pretty deep into the crypto space.
1: Did you ever get compromised? Because uh, you know, there's been tons of stories written about the millions of crypto
0: yeah. accounts so that I, have been
1: compromised.
0: I, I indirectly was on more than one occasion in a non-trivial way. So. I lost quite a lot of Bitcoin. Were you ever other... a
1: victim of ransomware?
0: I wasn't a victim of ransomware, but I was a victim of the dumb thing called storing your tokens on the exchange. Mm-hmm. And then the exchange got hacked or went down or pulled the plug and lost everything. So Mt. Gox, MTGOX, which if you didn't know, was actually Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, the card game. And, so, you know, which, and that became like the big crypto exchange of the time and so you know their infrastructure was not like they were in over their head and so it's not actually that surprising in retrospect that they went down right and so i lost everything that i had and that was in that exchange i lost and then there's another btc-e that went down i lost that but I i was never directly targeted i was i was always pretty anal and ocd about my private keys and things but but that's but i'll tell you that's what i learned early on though that how important it is to manage your own private keys right and that's what I think people still, a lot of people that are trading crypto don't fully grasp, right, is that you don't really own it and you're not actually, like, guaranteeing that you're going to have your token if you're trusting an exchange or some other party to be the custodian, right? So, like, because you're not, you don't have the keys. So, like, if you have, you know, Coinbase, for instance, right, and you go and you buy some Bitcoin on Coinbase, well, Coinbase, if you read the fine print, your coin might be completely forfeited and, you know, if they go bankrupt in a bankruptcy proceeding, if they get hacked, if they go down, if they pull a plug and run away, you're done. You don't have your coin. They take it, right? Because you're just trusting them to store it. So, and that's kind of literally antithesis to, like, to the point of crypto in a lot of ways, where the idea of crypto is you own it. And But you only do that if you yourself are storing your private keys to a wallet address, which is which is built on public key infrastructure. So, you know, it's just public key, private key that, that your token is represented by. So I learned that, you know, early on the hard way via losing Bitcoin, they weren't worth nearly as much debt as they are now. But so I'll, really quickly, I'll go and say, OK, so I knew that. And so I was spewing stuff about blockchain to Nolan. And he had much more of a familiarity in cryptography than I did. And so our minds just kind of were bouncing everywhere. And the week after we met, you know, we were we got dinner one night and then we found ourselves in the office depot parking lot with like a whiteboard that wasn't gonna fit in the car. And so we decided to not get that and then ended up coming out with a big pad of paper instead. And we took that back to the house and that became a routine thing. And then before you know it, you know, we have six wall-to-wall whiteboards in my Basement at the house, and then the rest is history.
1: So, was that the makings of Blackbox or the makings of New ID?
0: That's New ID. So, this is all New ID, and Blackbox was was actually a briefly renamed Offshoot Joint Venture that we spun out from New ID that was originally Silent Services and Blackbox Solutions, which was a partnership and joint venture between us and the technology that I was kind of mentioning about the all the aggregated breach data, and what that focused on was. Kind of white glove cyber solutions for cybersecurity due diligence for M and A transactions, primarily for like private equity firms. And the idea of doing that was we realized there's a lot of value in that data set that we had, but we didn't want to at New ID operationally run a business on that, just because it was it wasn't core to to what we're doing, and it was you know a lot of work, so we basically spun that out. And subcontracted most of the work so that we didn't have to operationally do it.
1: So, what is New ID? Can you break it down for us?
0: Sure. So, New ID is a digital identity company tackling identity through authentication. So, we provide the tools for anyone to use and leverage cryptography to make their identity secure and portable between services and no longer have to rely on each of the services they have an account with. To secure all their login information and personal data,
1: and this goes for developers. It goes for everybody. This goes for any human. Anyone doing finance transactions.
0: Everything. Okay. Everything.
1: One of the things that I saw on your site I thought was interesting is is that you had a stat: eighty percent of hacking incidents are caused by weak or stolen credentials. This is still a problem. Why is this still a problem?
0: Well, it's actually a a self perpetuating problem. And the idea is that you use a password for pretty much everything, right? And most people typically aren't carrying around, you know, a a list folding out of their wallet that has 140 different passwords, you know, all 30 characters long for every single thing they use, right? So people have a tendency, and, and I don't, well, maybe these days I do, but I typically, I would say I don't blame them because it's impo- it's hard to remember all those, right? And where
1: uh, you lose them,
0: you lose exactly. And then you're you know you constantly forgot password. You go through that whole rigmarole, and ultimately, ulti- and I'll and I'll get to this probably later. What I'm about to say, your email implicitly is today your identity online because that's what you use to reset your password. That's where you use to set passwords, right? And it's also a a correlatable identifier because folks will use you know the their email address repeatedly across services when they create accounts, right? And that is most, most often time your, your login name, your username, right? And this is getting to exactly to your question. That is your username that, you know, there's an associated password or credential with. And so, you know, the majority of all the, the websites and, and services that people use these days online in this kind of the Web2 standard work as follows. So you're asked, you know, username, Password when you register an account. email is probably that username. Put in a password. And you choose one. You throw it in. Those are both sent over the internet to a server somewhere. And then on that server, they are, if they're good, and this is only <laughs> good, this is like half the services out there, they'll hash the password, meaning they'll basically, for lack of a, getting into the detail, you can think of it as encrypted, right? To make it just a bunch of garbled gook. And then they save that in a database. So, long story short, all of these services are actually creating this big database and list of usernames and passwords, right? So that subsequently, when when someone goes to log in, you know, they put it in the correct thing, it's sent over. Does it match? Yes. Okay, logged in. Great. Well, there's a few there's a few things to note here. One, all these services are are maintaining their own ledger, their own list of these credentials, right? And two you uh, are actually having to share your secret with them, right? which is kind of an oxymoron in and of itself. But how is that database protected? Well, at some point, it's protected by somebody logging into a system also using a password somewhere, right? And so some admin that has a responsibility and in control of securing some database of user login data, they get compromised somewhere along the line whether that's, you know, social hacking, or maybe they use the same password that they use on their, say, LinkedIn account, right? And LinkedIn, by the way, some years back, they got hacked, compromised. And yes, they hashed passwords. And this gives you an example of why hashing is not that great. I think it was, is eighty-six 86%? I think it was 86% of all the accounts in the database that LinkedIn had of their users login information, their hashes were already cracked and compromised. And on this, you know, it's called a rainbow table online, meaning a list of already hacked passwords, right?
1: I was one of them.
0: Okay, you, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so someone that's trying to penetrate, you know, s- system XYZ, they obviously try all the credentials that they found in there. Oh, boom, they just found the, you know, that the admin there uses the same password that they did at LinkedIn. Now they've gotten in there and they've compromised this whole other set, right? And so the more hacks and the more compromises that take place, the more robust these tools and data sets become of already compromised and leaked credentials, right? We used to actually have the side project that we called Silent Services, but we had aggregated over 11 billion, almost 12 billion credentials from over 9,500 hacks of index searchable breach data. The whole goal was a research project to demonstrate why storing passwords was a problem and how this perpetual cycle got worse and worse and worse, right? And so, you know, before I can keep going on about it, but I think, I mean, that's ultimately the root cause. And I will go ahead and say that, you know, everyone's all about passwordless and biometrics, right? And biometrics are great and all until they get compromised <laughs> because you can change a password, but it's much harder to change your fingerprints or your eye scan. Etc. So we've seen, you know, the OPM hack here years ago, where a number of uh, our three-letter agencies had to remove people, I guess, from having clearance because their biometrics got compromised. We've seen in India, their equivalent of like a DMV, they were storing server-side biometric data that got compromised. So there's been quick jumps to try and remedy this problem without kind of having thought through or or. Seen the consequences of some of these solutions. It's, I mean, and that's the problem you're seeing online, right? Your accounts getting hacked, people identity theft, everything, and it's because, in some way, a bad actor is pretending to be you. In some case, either they've got your credentials, or they're spoofing something, or what have you. And so, we tackle identity at the authentication layer, and really, this this is how we, you know, got there. Is we, we our ideas back then, you know, we landed that identity was a problem because that was a problem for everything that we were actually thinking about. And then we're like, well, identity is really not a problem. It's authentication. It's because of this password problem that we have right now. And it's not only a, you know, a horrible inefficiency and time waster and everything for everyone, but it's, it's literally the most fragmented system and it doesn't use public key infrastructure, doesn't use cryptography like the, you know, kind of founders of the internet envisioned it to. We didn't use that because people don't manage private keys well. And so we have, as I described at the very beginning, this situation where every single service has this siloed database, you know, of everybody's credentials. Uh, and so, you know, the users have to deal with a whole different registration and account everywhere they go. And they have to trust every single one of those services to, in theory, be securing that data, right? And so we tackle it by our protocol that, as you said, we claim it to be, you know, zero knowledge authentication, trustless authentication. What that is, and I'll quickly explain. Is it makes it where the user doesn't actually have to trust anyone, us included, to secure that authentication credential because it's not stored anywhere. So we like to say there's without anything to store, there's nothing to steal. So we eliminate the need. So our the product that we launched a couple of years ago is our authentication solution. It's for enterprises, developers, anyone building you know web app, website, what have you, anything that you need login for. It's super simple, seamless integration to replace the login workflow for users of a service. To make it such that when a user registers an account, and and it supports passwords and other factors, but passwords, you know, are the most common, that password doesn't actually have to leave the user's device or get stored on their device anywhere. It's used to generate a parameter. I'm not even going to go into how this works because we because of time here, but we have it, you know, information on our site, and this is we have this patented also. We've got 57 claims patented around this in the U.S. now, but it's all you know. We have an open core technology, open source libraries, and. What it allows is
1: well. You have a great white paper for those who want to really dive in deep. I read the white paper a few times. Oh, awesome. I did. I, I did need a little oh. bit of decoding in there when I got to some more of the complex diagrams. But the part that I thought was really interesting about the deep dive in that paper, which I highly recommend people read, is that as you read it, you realize we have we have all been in this vortex of just it's the problem, you know, that gets bigger and manifests for. But I have one of the things I, I, I felt though was did the blockchain crypto world need to happen in order for you to actually reveal that there was a better way? Absolutely. So explain how that world allowed you to be able to solve the magnitude of the problem.
0: So it's kind of funny, right? The problem and the solution Are kind of arose through the same channels. Because we use the, uh, the blockchain. Now we're not, you know, a, we use the blockchain as one component to our solution, which is purely to persist in an immutable way, in a distributed fashion, these public parameters, that is the kind of anchor, the indexer and representation of a user's credential. But we're not, you know, I'm not a cryptocurrency, smart contract company, right? So we, and any blockchain can work. Well, we use the core and the heart of the actual technology, right? Of a distributed ledger to allow users to own their own identity, right? So it's not just new ID that's storing this public parameter that someone has to trust.
1: Are you mitigating risk now? I mean, do I become less vulnerable as a result of using new ID?
0: Absolutely. So you become less vulnerable as a result of a service that you interact with using new id so so we, our current you know currently our authentication service is not directly for users it is for websites web apps and everything to use and if you use a service that uses new id you never have to worry about your login data or account ever getting compromised because if, allows, uh,
1: if i'm a fortune 5000 company or yeah. a, or a startup company and i have my website and any of my apps that that could be used internally or externally or they become e-commerce site. You're now actually new ID is going to give me that layer of zero. uh, We're going to do that layer
0: of reducing liability because we're going to eliminate the need for you to ever see, store, and therefore be liable and having to secure any user login data at all. That database we've talked about of login information, that's gone. There's none of that. You never actually have to touch this stuff, right? You know, and and like you saw with Twitter, right? They might have a super secure database, but people's uh, account information, and plain text, passwords are all getting stored in log files. (laughs) None of that. None of that. Because literally, you as a company, eliminate ever even having any of your systems touch user data like that. And they can rest assured that they're not also exposing their users to liability via us because we aren't seeing it, touching it, or securing it either. It all happens on the user device endpoint.
1: So I want to understand, like, in terms of just getting people to embrace this, getting investors to embrace this and think, you know what, this is the future. Like, this is the way we need to go.
0: So I'm not 100% sure that all of our investors fully understood exactly the technology at the time. I think uh, a lot of them invested in the team and Nolan and I and, you know, our passion and, and surety and whatnot. But for one, it helped that one of the world's top cryptographers, Professor Matthew Franklin of UC Davis, uh, had validated our original protocol design. And he's known for the like Bonet Franklin scheme of identity-based encryption and some other things. A brilliant guy. And, you know, he was a great advisor for us. But Ultimately I so we you know I left I left Bill Gates fund in, in January twenty seventeen. We filed our first patent applications in February, March, and then incorporated in April and we closed a one point seven million dollar round in May. And uh, so it was a, it was a whirlwind a few months. But first of all, I mean our investors believed in this and they saw it. I you know, Jemison Investment Company, the guy that was running it at the time, who's unfortunately passed away since Corbin Day. I remember I, I walked in there one morning, and I had, you know, the pitch deck, I would sent that to them and everything. And I think it was a two hour conversation and you know, I painted the picture of the future, the vision, right, with this and, and where it's going and return returning data ownership to the individual ultimately, right? And starting starting with, you know, enterprise, then moving kind of to, to a user end user tool. And I think it was the energy and also I think that He had probably I don't know. You just see in his eyes he followed along. He got it right, and basically they called me at 11 a.m. the next day and gave us a million dollars. So they were our biggest backer in that first round. Now I will say interestingly that I was very much leaning at first and organizing and had structured, but was looking to not go the VC and angel investor route, which is what we did, but to actually do a token sale, you know, an ICO, and actually you know fund ourselves with issuing a crypto token, which we actually like, are doing now funny enough because ultimately our grand vision requires it for the technological side key and you can read more about that on our foundation website keychain.info but and we have a whole separate white paper for that as well but the and so so that's always been part of the roadmap but we thought i wanted to do it back in 2017 but the craziness of the space coupled with however how many scams were happening and coming you know it, it was getting a bad rap and plus because our first product, right, was to be an enterprise, a B2B software product authentication solution for companies and services, blockchain didn't have the same, you know, didn't leave the same taste in people's mouths then as it does today. It was worse, is my point. You know, people didn't know web three, people weren't all hot on blockchain. And so if you coupled yourselves as a blockchain crypto company, you weren't going to get very far, you know, selling a a software product, a cybersecurity product to, to an enterprise. And so, so we went the traditional BC route. We kicked the can on doing that until we needed to, which, you know, six years later, basically. And we're fortunate enough to, you know, and we talked to, you know, I definitely remember pitching some guy that like people just like, absolutely, I like, didn't get it, you know, what I can do with it. And, and those were not our folks. So we found the right folks that wanted to support the project. And every single one of them participated in the next round, the following year, 2018 as well.
1: Hey there, It's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Brian Seeley, who tried to alert authorities that there was a weakness in Google Maps by hacking the FBI.
0: Well, there's three agents and me in this little maybe a size of a two-car garage sort of lobby. And I was like, all right, I know you guys don't believe me. Call the office of the Secret Service in Washington, D.C., and I'll prove it. So he pulls his cell phone out, and he gets the guy on the switchboard, and he knows him personally, and talks to him for a minute, hangs up. I get a notification on my phone, push play, push speaker, and now I can play back his conversation, and they're the most composed they're all like military now cops and the only thing the guy said was oh shit and then they took all my stuff
1: i learned something actually a lot of somethings every time i talk to a new guest they're pioneers they're thought leaders in their fields they all have inspiring stories to tell and i share them with you every week so if you're enjoying these episodes please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments Before it happened. So you stated somewhere, and I remember where, you say that a third of businesses will not be using identity verification. So what about the next 20 years? Where are we going? And where where do you visualize that what you've created now becomes this platform of choice, the standard?
0: That's the hope.
1: What do you where where do we go is uh, in terms of the enterprises being able to you know have new ID in this platform to become the standard with this zero knowledge and this full I'm going to say this decentralized authentication and self sovereign identity right and that brings this level of trust where we go where are we going next?
0: So we're going to complete the chicken and the egg problem. So the chicken and egg problem being onboarding services, companies, right? And then users. And we had to start with enterprises because if I walked down in the street and I was like, you know, hey, I've got this great new authentication and digital identity, you know, tool. You've got to use it. You're like, great, where can I use it? I'm like, nowhere. You know, it's not, it's not going to help very much, right? So we we started with the enterprise side. I want I say enterprise, I actually mean any service, you know, startups, side projects, any, anyone can use it. And anyone can go deploy it, self-deploy it on our portal. For free, all the libraries are there, all the documentation, everything. And how
1: hard is it for a developer?
0: Or we've had we had a CTO of a, a healthcare record company startup say it was the easiest thing and took him one day. You know, if if you're doing it into a, a greenfield, a brand new project, you can deploy it in an hour. And we focused. I mean, uh, one of the biggest points that we in, wanted to ensure was that it was less friction than the existing standard and status What you would do, it needed to be easier and simpler and uh, just intuitive. And so we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to iron out frictions, right? And make sure that it is simple. We have pre-baked integrations with major code bases, libraries. So Java, JavaScript, React, whatever, you know, you, those are all those libraries and cryptography libraries are all, all on there and, and pre-created. So it's very easy to use.
1: So in a, in a world of developers, I just you just triggered something sure. in the in the Google world where so many people trust Google, you know, for mm-hmm. everything from navigation to passwords to email and, you know, you name it. Right. So how do how do you get a company like Google to embrace this? Is this something that you we don't?
0: we don't um, ultimately like right now, Facebook a Google or Meta, they are ultimately a competitor in a way because they want to be the ones providing federated identity for people because they want your data that's the reality right they want to see exactly what you're doing they want to be the ones that you're so ingrained in that they you know basically oversee your access to all these different accounts have all that data and so that they can leverage it you know for their business and that makes sense given you know what they what they do and you know i make of that as you will you know i'm not exactly a tinfoil hat guy even though i've seen the craziest stuff you can imagine but ultimately, I mean, Facebook, they want to be logging with Facebook, right? Federated Identity, because that gives them more data on you and your habits. What we're doing is like logging with Facebook, except for you own that data, no one else is capturing it, and you're not held kind of prisoner to one system that has control, right? Like new ID could disappear, and our protocol and the credentials that are registered through it for users would persist because they are stored outside of us.
1: So now, after all this, what's
0: next for you, Luck? I think I've got a long journey ahead with all the different further out visions, goals I have and and things past digital identity. What's cool about what we're doing is all of the, and this is a teaser, I won't get into this really, but there's so many what I call identity-enabled services that new ID, coupled with some other technologies that are emerging, are going to allow to come into existence and to emerge, that there's going to be just no shortage of fun projects to work on. And, and we're actually launching a, what I call the dev fund, where we will actually be investing in other parties building services and, and apps using new ID on kind of, in our ecosystem, on our platform. You know, I've got a list of like 34 different ideas. We actually built out some of them fully, you know, tech specs, business plan, whole thing on what, like one of them being like a user-owned data monetization tool you know, all these things that really couldn't happen without a unified, you know, kind of standardized, user-owned and portable and interoperable identity model. Because the identity model of new ID allows any service, right, that you're interacting with to interact with and reference your identity because it's a standard data form, which just doesn't exist today. You know, other than maybe logging on Facebook, but that doesn't doesn't have much other than your Facebook data. <laughs>
1: On a personal level, I've had my identity stolen at least three times once through a medical cyber theft, second via stolen bank login, and third on an e commerce site. It's real and really scary. The idea of a single New ID password versus a logbook or post it notes provides an extra layer of prevention for a more secure future. I think Lock is on a path to help businesses and end users to be a lot safer as the Web 3.0 takes course. Want to know more about New ID? Check the show notes for a link to a very in-depth white paper. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.